0: 1 Kings 13, we we'll begin reading in verse number 1. I'd like to make mention of the fact that it's always the case, if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible to read, there's one in front of you there, uh, in the in the back of the chair in front of you, and I would encourage you to take that and follow along. It makes a big difference when someone's reading from Scripture if your eyeballs are looking at the same words. helps you to internalize it even better than just hearing it, so I encourage you to do that. And if you don't own a Bible and would like to take one of those with you, those are our gift to you. You're welcome to do that as well. First Kings chapter 13, verse number 1, Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out." So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet dwelt at Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread, nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, and he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water, in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is fitted him to the lion which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him." And he spoke to his sons, "Sickie for me." So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his sons, saying, When I am dead, Then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel, and against all the shrines on the high places which were in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places. wherever, Whoever he wished, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places, And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, for the easy passages and the hard ones. We're thankful, Father, that there's something for us in every single word of your Bible. And so I pray today, as we look at uh, this uh, interesting story, that you'll speak to us, you'll teach us, you'll help us to see the key truth. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit, forgive me, Father, cleanse me of anything that would uh, hinder my usefulness today, and just, uh, just speak through me, I pray, and may we all respond as we ought to to your word this day. We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Weird story, huh? Well, first of all, a little bit of background. Jeroboam at this time was the king in Israel. You will remember that Saul had been the first king over the nation of Israel, but his unfaithfulness to God had caused God to depose him and raise up David uh, in his stead. David, who was uh, arguably Israel's greatest king. Upon David's death, his son Solomon took over the throne and uh, reigned over an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity and wealth in Israel. But then Solomon died and uh, Rehoboam, his son, Took the throne. Now, Rehoboam was as stupid as Solomon was wise, and so his absolutely very first decision that he took caused the kingdom to split. And ten northern tribes of Israel revolted from following after Rehoboam, and they made Jeroboam their king, and that was the northern kingdom of Israel. The remaining two tribes of Judah and Benjamin remained loyal to Rehoboam. So here we're looking at a story that's taking place. After those events, Jeroboam is the king in Israel. And uh, one of the first things that Jeroboam did as king was to build altars. He built altars at the city of Dan, and he built an altar at the city of Bethel. He feared that because the temple was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the capital city of Rehoboam, that the people in worshiping God would be going back to there and that he might lose the kingdom as a result. This might cause them to return to Reboam because of constantly going back there to worship. And so he built these altars supposedly to stave off that responsibility. But unfortunately, the thing developed into full-blown idol worship. He constructed golden calves, and uh, said that the God of Israel was actually riding on the back of these calves. He led people in worshiping them instead of Jehovah God. He ordained priests and all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, we can read about his sinful uh, establishment of this. If we just go back a few verses, just flip back to the last chapter, or the chapter previous, chapter 12, and look at verse number 28. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt." And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. He made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned Incense. So all of this stuff that he was doing was counterfeit. It was idolatrous. It was against the the true worship of Jehovah. And it was against this sinful backdrop, all of that that was taking place and into this idolatrous situation that God sent a prophet, a man of God from Judah. He was a nameless prophet. Nothing more is said about this man in Scripture other than what we read here, and then over in Second Kings chapter 21, we see where his prophecy was fulfilled to the letter, some years on down the road. Josephus, in his antiquities of the Jews, says his name was Jadon, but uh, that may or may not be accurate. Josephus was known to embellish some of his histories from time to time, so we don't really know if that's true. And we don't need to know the man's name. It's not important to the story. Actually, the story makes a little bit more sense if we don't know his name. If the Holy Spirit wanted us to know it, he would have provided it. He's a nameless prophet. So let's see what happened when this nameless man of God came upon Jeroboam worshiping idols at Bethel. If you're taking notes, I'm going I'm to kind of divide this up in three ways. First of all is what happened here. Second is why did it happen. And third, what is God trying to say to us from what happened here? And if you get nervous, the first point is the long one. The other two are kind of short. So don't get nervous. The long, first one is long. So what happened? Here, let's just kind of go down through the story and uh, describe it, perhaps. I think the man of God came upon Jeroboam while he was in the very act of sacrificing to his idols. Now, as we mentioned, we don't know a whole lot about him. We don't know his name. We really don't know anything about him except that he was a man of God. And he was from Judah. But there are a couple of interesting points seen in the text. First, it says several times that he spoke by the word of the Lord. That's a key phrase in here. He spoke by the word of the Lord. We see that in verses 1 and 2. We see it in verse 9. So when he spoke out against this wicked altar and the more wicked idolatry that was being practiced on it, he was speaking for God and he was speaking from God. Secondly, he is is referred to in this text as the man of God, literally the man of Elohim. Elohim is one of the names of God. The first name of God we see in our Bible. In the beginning, Elohim. And so... He's referred to as the man of God. Now, there's another prophet mentioned in the text. We'll get to him in a minute. He's always referred to just simply as prophet, a prophet. And and, and there's got to be some distinction to that. This one is always referred to as the man of God. That one is always referred to as prophet. And perhaps as we get down through here, that distinction will become a little bit clearer when we see the details of what took place. He prophesied against the altar. As seen in our King James New King James Bibles, his prophecy consisted of 46 words. Wouldn't you like to come to a church with a preacher only preached 46 words? I'm a little past that by now. Got a little ways to go. 46 words. But he got a tremendous amount in there. And what he said is absolutely amazing in his detail. He named a king that was not yet born. He named Josiah. Josiah would not be known for another 290 years. But he named him. One man said, nothing is more contingent and arbitrary than the giving of names to persons, and yet Josiah was here named above 300 years before he was born. Nothing future is hidden from God. He knows it just the same as he knows the present. The events described in this text took place approximately 931 B.C. Josiah would be a king in Judah. He would be the king from 640 to 609 B.C. He would be the last of Judah's godly kings. He would, he would enact all kinds of reforms. You can read all about the amazing prophecy of this, uh, the amazing fulfillment of this equally amazing prophecy if you go to 2 Kings chapter 23, and we won't do that for sake of time, but you might want to do it on your own. 2 Kings 23 verses 15 through 20, you'll find that Josiah did indeed come, he did indeed reign, he did indeed do exactly what this nameless prophet said he would do. Amazing in his precision, isn't it? Prophecy. It's not the only time. There's other times in the Bible when we have that kind of precision in prophetic uh, words. Isaiah spoke of Cyrus by name in Isaiah 44 and 45. Uh, that was 150 years before Cyrus. Uh, after 150 years after his prophecy, that Persian king Cyrus would indeed come just as Isaiah prophesied and do what he said he would do. So Jeroboam's response to this prophecy is, uh, is pretty much what we would expect. He tried to arrest him, verse number four. Rather than listen to God's word, he tried to silence God's preacher, which is not an uncommon response. wasn't then. It's not today. His stretching out his hand toward the man of God was an hostile act, and God judged him for that, protected the prophet by rendering that arm useless. Now, I don't know if you can picture this or not, but it looks to me from the Scripture like he pointed his arm at at him, you know, stuck his arm out there, and there it just froze there. I can just imagine him just sitting there like this with his arm out. He couldn't pull it back to himself again, it says. Interesting, God was protecting his prophet. God was showing Jeroboam that he was really powerless before God and his word by striking him physically. And God showed him, Jeroboam, and all those standing near that the prophecy was indeed from him because he had given a sign along with the prophecy, which was that altar would split in two and the ashes would pour out. And so it did that right then, lending credibility to what he had said. Jeroboam was probably standing on that altar the time this occurred, so picture him there, his arms all messed up. He's stuck in this ridiculous pose, and the altar splits, and the ashes pour out. If he was on it, he probably came tumbling to the ground at the same time. When we were uh, when we were in Israel, the last time we were in Israel, we went to Dan. Now, this took place in Bethel, but he had an altar in Beth- Bethel and an altar in Dan, and we went to Dan. And that's one of the things that they have discovered there. I don't remember which of you might have been with us at that time. You might remember that altar at Dan, but they have discovered it. It's also one of those things that they're almost absolutely certain is accurate. When you go to Israel, some things are representative. Some things they say, well, it would have been like this, but we can't be sure this is exactly where it was. This one, they're pretty convinced this is it. The altar is there. It's been reconstructed to a certain extent, so you can see what it would have looked like as it's in ruins now. But it was actually a very large structure. I can't remember the exact dimensions in my mind. I can remember it as something like maybe 12 to 20 feet square, and it was, I don't know, four or five feet high. It would have had steps going up onto it. And so the priest, in this case King Jeroboam, would have been up there, at least on the approach to it, uh, when all of this took place. And so he is judged, his arm is withered, the, the thing is busted open, and uh, he recognizes that God has done this, Jeroboam does, And he asks the prophet to pray for restoration of his hand. But I want you to notice he didn't accept him as his God. He said, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God. Isn't that interesting? He recognizes that God has done this, but, uh, he's not willing to accept him as his God yet. You know, so how, how like so many, many like Jeroboam hear the word of God realize it's the Word of God, see the reality of God, maybe even experience, as Jeroboam did, the undisputed evidence of God, power of God in their lives, and yet they cling to their idolatry and their sin. They might seek the prayers of others in their needs, but they cling to the idolatry in their own life. Well, he asked the prophet for healing for that withered hand. The prophet prayed, and uh, that hand was healed. But then something interesting happened, and I think as we get into this part, we get into the real crux of what this story is all about. You see, the king offered to repay the man of God with earthly reward in verse number 7. And the man of God said no. He turned down the offer. And in verses 8 through 10, I think we have the key to everything else that happens in this chapter. You see, the prophet had been told by God. We need to get those words in our brain. The prophet had been told by God to not eat or drink in that place, and not even to return by the same way he had come. And so he refused Jeroboam's offer of reward and hospitality, and he went on his way. In verse number 11, we meet somebody else. We meet this second prophet. It's impossible to think about this second prophet without getting a bit peeved, isn't it? Without a little bit of revulsion coming up within us. One man said of him, if if this were a true prophet, he was a bad man. That's an understatement. He wasn't He wasn't much of a prophet. Josephus, in his somewhat embellished account, says that he was a wicked man in that city who was a false prophet, whom Jeroboam had in great esteem. Now, I don't know what worse you could say about him. Maybe all three of those statements that are made about him there are terrible. He was wicked, he was false prophet, and Jeroboam liked him. It's like saying Hitler liked you. It was terrible. Joseph also described him as bedridden and infirm in his old age. So whether or not his facts are accurate, Josephus' facts... Is questionable, but we know some things from scripture about this prophet. We know he was old and we know he was living in Bethel. And we know that he was not the one God used to prophesy against Jeroboam. He was old. Maybe he had grown lazy. Does that ever happen? You know, many people think old age is playtime. No one in this room would think that I know, but many people think old age is playtime, time to sit back and relax, the golden years. And the thing is that the time when they would be most useful to God is the time that they decide, oh, we're just going to further that away and not use that for God. Maybe that was him. He was old. Perhaps he had grown incompetent. Many people simply need to sit down. They're no longer useful. And I'm not looking at anybody in this room, but it's true. We have an entire Congress filled with people like that. You know that? bunch of old fools who just need to get on with things and get out of there. They've been in there too long. You know, it's always a concern for a pastor. Pastors struggle with this. I struggle with this. I'm getting old. Pastors who want to serve as long as God and the church would have them, but who also feel old age and infirmity creeping. You just don't want to outstay your welcome. You don't want to outlive your usefulness i i know a former pastor friend of mine actually he was my pastor at one time who rode his church to the ground from an attendance of about 2000 to about oh i don't know 10 when they finally sold all their buildings and merged with another church because he would not let it go he would not come to the place where he knew that his time had passed maybe that was this guy Regardless, there's other explanations, too, maybe, but regardless of which, if any of these thoughts ring true, he was not doing anything for God. He was seemingly enjoying his quiet little time of retirement right in the middle of this sinful city, the Las Vegas of its day. There he was uh, doing nothing for God. He had sons who had apparently been there when the miraculous prophecy was, uh, was pronounced against the altar. They'd seen it all. They came back. They told this guy about this. And he said, which way did he go? Why did he ask which way he went? Why did he want to follow him? I don't know. The text doesn't say. It's not really important, but he did. He chased him down. He found him, and he asked him to come home. And then he said, verse 15, it's important. He said, come home with me and eat bread. Come home with me and eat bread. Now, when Jeroboam offered reward, it was kind of vague, wasn't it? He said, come home with me, and I'll give you a reward. This guy used very specific language. God's very specific command had used the same language. Look at verse number 9. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. Verse number 17, I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. And so this man's offer of bread certainly should have really set an alarm off in the man of God's God had told him not to do that, and so he told the he told the man of God this. Or he told the prophet this. He says, "That's what God said. I'm not going to do it. So go pound sand. I'm not going back with you." But then the prophet did something. He says, "But wait a minute. I'm a prophet, and God spoke to me, and God told me it was okay. So go ahead and come on back because it's okay. God told me it was okay. But I love verse number 18. I love the last part. I love the way the Bible is so clear about things. He was lying." He was lying to him. What? Preachers? Preachers never lie, do they? Anybody think preachers ever lie? Sadly, it's not all that uncommon. Joel Osteen lies almost every time he opens his mouth. All the time. The title of his best-selling book, Your Best Life Now, is a classic lie of all time. Maybe one of the top ten lies that's ever been told. Everybody who knows the Bible knows this is not your best life now. Tell that to the, the Christians in Nigeria and other places in Africa where they're being slaughtered by the hundreds and thousands for their faith. This is your best life now? I don't think so. Tell that to those Christians in North Korea or China who are sold into slavery and, 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 and forced to do slave labor and imprisoned and tortured and, and sometimes, yes, even killed for their faith. This is your best life now? I don't think so. Tell that to the Christians who live in Muslim lands and face horrible treatments at the hands of Islam. Joel Osteen lies to you. Don't listen to him. Ever. Don't even turn him on. Don't look at his smile. Don't listen to him. Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and others who tell you if you'll just send some money their way, all your problems will be solved. Your miracle is on the way. They lie to you. They're lying to you. And the thing, you don't even have to go to those kinds of extremes. There are many churches around Many churches around us that teach that, uh, you know, you can be good enough to go to heaven. That if you just keep your nose clean and live a good life, when you die, you're in. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, when you get to heaven, you're going to be okay. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible says. They're lying to you. I don't know that they're doing it on purpose, but they're nonetheless lying to you. Yesterday, I was mowing my lawn. And as I often do when I'm mowing my lawn, I was listening to a sermon through my headphones while sitting on the seat of my tractor. And I was listening to Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., tremendous, tremendous preacher. And he mentioned a church right around the corner from him. He said it's one of the largest churches in Washington, D.C. And he, he said how, how wonderful the building was and how it attracted so many people and was was so well known. He said he would defend it to the death, its right to, uh, to exist and to proclaim their message, you know, as a constitutional right. But then he said to his church, he said, but I'll tell you this, don't believe a word they say. He said everything they say is a lie. And, of course, he said it very nicely. He said it very kind, much kinder than me. I'm not very good at those sort of things, but he basically said, don't believe what they say because what they say is lies. This wicked prophet lied to the man of God. And the man of God believed him. He believed him, and he went with him. Now, now you need to think this through because this this is the whole key to this whole thing. The man of God knew the word of the Lord. We know that from verses 1 and 2, from verse 9, from verse 17, but he allowed another prophet to deceive him into disobeying. What he knew. The phrase, the word of the Lord, is mentioned 11 times in this chapter. It's a key phrase to understanding it all. He had a word from God, which he knew was from God, and he held it up against a word from an unknown man, and discarded the word of God in favor of this man's word. He had told King Jeroboam that absolutely nothing King Jeroboam could give him would entice him to disobey God. But then, even when the riches of a king couldn't do it, the subtle false teaching of a lying prophet could. False teachers are dangerous. Dangerous. There's a reason we are warned to stay away from such. 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, so even though he was a false prophet, God now spoke through him as they're sitting at the dinner table, and he declared judgment on the man of God. Notice the explanation of why... God's judgment was so harsh, verse number 21, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord. Also, verse 21, because you have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. Verse 22, you ate bread and drank water which the Lord said, eat no bread and drink no water. Three times the charge was repeated for emphasis. Three times God was saying to him through this false prophet, you knew the word of the Lord, but you ignored it and listened to the word of man. So the story ends with the a fellow leaving the dinner that he never should have gone to. Uh, the prophecy against him was fulfilled as he went along the road. A lion attacked him, killed him. And, of course, this is the part of the story that most people's minds fixate on. This is the part of the story that seems weird. It's part of the story that seems supernatural. As people came along, here was this there was this dead body laying in the road, a lion standing beside it, just standing there, and the donkey standing right beside the lion. And if you picture that, it is a ridiculous, weird picture, uh, so much so that it had to have been yet another indication that God was doing something here. As everybody went by there, they looked at that. that's not natural. This is a God thing. God is saying something to us here. One person wrote, All the circumstances of this tragic occurrence, the undevoured carcass, the untouched ass, the passengers unmolested by the lion, those standing there were calculated to produce an irresistible impression that the hand of God was in it. And by the way, there are no lions in Israel today. If we go back to Israel and anybody says, I'm not going to go because there might be lions, there are no lions in Israel today, but there were at this time. They're no longer there. So finally we see from verse number 26, the old backslidden, deceiving prophet knew exactly what had happened. He explained exactly and accurately in verse number 26 that he realized the man of God from Judah had disobeyed, and this was the judgment that had resulted. So that's what happened. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? And and before I guess we can answer that question, we kind of have to think of another one that maybe is more foundational, and that is this. Who is this story really about? Who is this story about? I mean, it's tempting to suggest the obvious and say that this story is about uh, the man of God. But I don't think it is. I don't think he's the main character in the story. And I don't think it's ultimately about the old lying prophet either. I think this story is about Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, and his sin of disobedience. The entire narrative here sits between what we described of his sin in chapter 12, the end of chapter 12 there, and his worshiping of idols. Then we have this story, and then we have the conclusion of it all in verse number 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn away from his evil way. Verse 34, this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. When we consider that Jeroboam is the main character of the story, it makes it a little easier to answer the question which is burning in all of our minds, and that question is this, because this is the question most people ask. Why did God so harshly judge this faithful man of God? Why did he do that? It doesn't seem fair. He came along and he did what he was told to do. He made one little piddly mistake. It seems like such a piddly mistake. And a lion killed him. Why did God so harshly judge him? Well, one thing we have to remember is God is sovereign. And God knows all things. Even the things we can't see. Even the things we can't understand. We trust him. We let God be judged. But I believe that there is another reason. I believe God was using not only the spoken words from this man of God, but the subsequent judgment of him as an as a, uh, illustration, as an object lesson to speak very specifically to Jeroboam, who was leading his people into disobedience and destruction. I think those last two verses indicate that all of this was known to Jeroboam. Not only the message, but the judgment. And what had taken place on the road, it was an illustration of God's message to Jeroboam. God asked a lot of his prophets. Elijah had to sit by a stream and be fed by a raven. Jeremiah had to spend some time in a muddy pit of a well. Some were thrown into prison. John the Baptist was beheaded for his preaching. Read Hebrews chapter 11. You'll find all sorts of troubles there, some of which would make death seem like a good thing. because they served God faithfully. It's not hard for me to see how God would similarly use this man's situation, this man's disobedience, as an illustration of Jeroboam's disobedience and of the judgment that was going to come upon him. Not only upon him, but upon the whole kingdom. So that's what happened. That's why it happened. Let me ask one last question and we'll be done. What is God saying here to you and to me? I studied this message because this past week, earlier this past week, our, our brother Josh Richards texted me early in the morning. I was sitting there reading my Bible, which I like to do early in the morning, and my phone beeped, and I looked and it was a message from Josh. And he said, Have you ever preached on First Kings thirteen? And I looked up this passage and I said, well, no, I don't think I ever have preached on that. And he said, I challenge you. The next time I come there I want to hear you preach on John thirteen or first John or whatever it is, first Kings thirteen. And so, game on. Challenge accepted. I started to study it, and I thought, I'll see what it has to say. And, you know, we've been uh, we've been in a little series here of just words, various words, little big words that we need more of is kind of what I've been thinking through. And I had already picked the word obey for this week. And so as I read this passage, I realized, my goodness, this passage, that's what it's talking about. We've talked about kindness and uh, forgiveness and joy and following, as in following Christ. From this passage, I want us to think about that word obey, because if there's one application that shouts to us from this story, it's that God takes obedience seriously. It's shouting at us. I read recently somewhere that uh, there are so many laws in the United States of America that uh, nobody knows how many there are. They're uncountable. Thousands hundreds of thousands perhaps millions if you take into account the laws that are on a federal level the laws that are in the state level the laws that are on the on the you know municipality level uh, un- unknowable how many laws we have but in the beginning there was only one only one obey God's command to Adam and Eve to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had nothing to do about the tree it had nothing to do with the fruit People like to argue about what was the fruit. doesn't matter. Who cares? It was irrelevant. It had to do with that one word, obey. Will you obey God? Will you obey God's word? That was the only law. That was the only test. You see, when we know God's word, we must not allow anything or anyone to pull us away from it. Not a friend, not a family member, not the norms of our wicked culture, not the accepted teachings of science falsely so-called, not social media, not another preacher, not even me. You cannot allow anybody to pull you away from what you know to be true, from the Word of God. Galatians 1.8 says, Paul told the Galatian Christians, he said, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. We've seen that the real issue here The real way we understand this passage is recognizing this man knew God's word, but chose to listen to a word from an unknown and unprovable source. Rather than hold to the word he knew was from God. One man said this, he said, listen to the voice of God and live. Listen to the voice of people and die. So where are you on this, my friend? Are you obeying the word of God? Or are you ordering your life around the words of men, of culture, of lying prophets? Our graduates today have a lot of decisions to make in their life. And this is one of the big ones. Where are you on this? It really drives home how desperately we need to know our Bibles, doesn't it? Because how in the world can you determine what is false if you don't, first of all, know what is true? This is one of the reasons why church faithfulness is so important we all need the preaching and teaching the word of god and i include myself in that which is why i listen to preach sermon after sermon when i'm mowing my lawn it's a reminder of how much we need to read our bibles on our own you'll never be able to understand and withstand false teaching if you don't know the truth from the false are you obeying the word i read where a missionary translator was endeavoring to find a word for obedience in the native language that he was trying to translate the Bible into. It was a virtue that was very seldom seen amongst the people, and he couldn't figure out what the word for it might be. As he was returning home one evening uh, to the village, he whistled for his dog, and it came running at top speed. And an old native who was sitting there watching this said admiringly, he said, your dog is all ear. And the missionary knew immediately he had his word. All ear. Are you all ear when it comes to God's word? Are you obeying God's word? There's so many areas of life that we might probe and, and, and try to apply that question to. Are you obeying his word? He says we ought to turn from sin and live holy lives. Are you obeying his word there to the best of your ability? He says we ought to love one another, even those who do us wrong. Are you obeying his word there? He says we ought to faithfully assemble with God's people regularly worshiping there. And, of course, you're here this morning, so you're at least obeying it this morning. But are you obeying that? He says we ought to tell others about what Jesus has done in our lives. Are you obeying his word there? He says we ought to live our lives with the constant knowledge that he's returning again. It could come back any moment. That changes everything about our life. Are you obeying his word there? I could go on and so could you. There's just no end to how how we could ponder that question and where we could apply it. But here is the most important area we need to apply it. He says... We need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him if we would be saved. Are you obeying his word there, my friend? Because that's the most important. That's the matter of first importance. Everything else is built on that. If you don't have that part right, nothing else matters. Acts 16.31, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household, have you believed Jesus? Are you obeying His word there. Do you believe that he lived and loved you and died for you and rose again to give you eternal life and now stands ready to save you? Are you obeying there? Have you believed in Jesus? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you prayed? Have you asked God to give you that gift of salvation? Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? As we study this little word, obey, and the more we study it, the bigger it becomes. It's something that God takes very seriously. Those of us who are saved and serious about our faith, you know, we we, we spend all our entire lives, we invest our entire lives trying to learn how to live it, how to be obedient. But it all starts with that first act of obedience at the foot of the cross. Are you all ears there? Are you obeying the Lord Jesus there? Do you believe? Well, let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for the word. We're so thankful for this strange story, which has such a really, I think, simple meaning. I pray you'd help us to think it through. I pray you'd help us to apply it in ways that are right. Help us, Father, to obey. I pray, Father, if there are those here today that don't know Christ as Savior, that they'd think about that as being the first step, because it is. I pray if there are those here today who have trusted Christ as Savior, but have never followed Him in baptism. The Bible says that's the first step of obedience for a Christian. I pray they'd think about that. And I pray, Lord, if there are believers here who are in some other way recognizing that right now the Holy Spirit is touching something, pointing out something in their life that, uh, is disobedient is not right. They need to they, they need to talk to you about it. I pray this day they would, Father. Whatever uh, people need today, I pray, Lord, that they would just uh, kneel at the foot of the cross and get it right. We pray it in Jesus' name.